to the blessed, noble, and perfectly enlightened one. Homage to the blessed, noble, and perfectly enlightened one. Namo suchedoye olahudi sanmiyao sanputoshye. The unsurpassed, deep, profound, subtle, wonderful Dharma in a hundred thousand million eons is difficult to encounter. Now that I have come to receive and hold it within my sight and hearing, I vow to fathom the thus come one's true and actual meaning. Venerable Master, Dhamma friends, welcome to our Sutra Lecture. This is uh, Saturday night, August 4th, 2012, just in case you weren't clear on that one. It's here in Berkeley, California. We're investigating the Avatamsaka Sutra the Ten Grounds chapter, the third ground, and if you would please turn to the front cover of your text. We're going to begin, like we always do, by uh, invoking the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas of the Avatamsaka Assembly, and we'll do that seven times. Please turn in your text to page 63. 
62 and We're on the second paragraph. Last week, uh, Dharma Master Hung Yin, Bhikshuni Hung Yin, stood in for me um, to explain the section of text. And I really, really appreciate that. It's not easy for uh, the nuns to drive 100 miles to come and give a sutra lecture, and uh, especially someone as busy as she is. And uh, I understand that it was quite a memorable uh, lecture and and brought people to new awarenesses, new insights, and new resolutions and all. Uh, I'm going to cover the same part of text that she did because we didn't record that uh, for the uh, um, for our series. So uh, those of you who are keeping track are going to say that sounds familiar. I think we covered that, Dharma Master. Um, so indeed we did, and I would just like to add my ideas to that passage that she already lectured. So we're on the second paragraph. begins with Fodzu, disciples of the Buddha. Okay, can we put our palms together, and I'll give you a line, and you give it back to me. Fodzu, Piru Zhenjin, Shan Chao Lian Zhi, Cheng Liang Bu Jian, 转更明镜。转更明镜。Okay, that much? To the right. Disciples of the Buddha? It is just like real gold. Which when expertly refined does not decrease in weight and becomes brighter and more pure. For the Bodhisattva? It is also that way. Okay. Uh, last Saturday night, I was in Gold Coast, Queensland, in Australia, and the uh, there's a lot of interest in the Avatamsaka Sutra there. So, Yanlin, uh, if you see uh, individuals joining in online from Australia, it's uh, that's we hope that that'll be a, a regular part of our of our community. They uh, weren't aware that they could. Uh, join online, and those folks will also be joining the Avatamsaka translation that we have on Monday mornings. Can you hear me in the back, David? Loud enough? Good. Okay. Yeah, this sounds. It's a good sound. So uh, we are in the section of the third ground that's a refrain. This is the kind of the the chorus part of the sutra of each ground of each of the ten grounds. By chorus, I mean the, uh, each of the ten grounds has a certain pattern that repeats, and it's a structure and a framework. And when it comes to the, uh, the part that precedes the verses, one of the main structures of the sutra is that there's text and then there's verses, and the verses are um, metered, so it's ba-bump, 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 
It's not da 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 da. It's dum ba dum ba dum. It's it's metered, and chances are, scholars will tell us that probably it was sung, probably it was memorized and sung, and memorized. And when there's something with a meter that corresponds to the heartbeat and to the lungs, it's easier to remember. You you retain it longer. So that's. one of the reasons why the sutra is is uh, organized that way. Some people will also tell you that the verses preceded the text. That the, the text is a expansion of the verses. That maybe the when this was originally spoken, it was uh, given or sung, sung with a chanting melody, uh, which in Catholicism is called chant tones. Uh, maybe not. Maybe that's uh, just the way it's been translated down. But in any case. The section just before the verses contains information that repeats. There's, uh, it's like a format that then you plug in new content to it. And this analogy of gold describing the Bodhisattva is one of those things that repeats. And in our section tonight, we also have ten kinds of xin, translated as you know, xin in Chinese, and we're going to work with that word a little bit because exactly what that means is very uh, tantalizing in English because we don't necessarily have the perfect word in English to capture what the word xin means in Chinese. And, of course, you want to go back and ask yourself what word did, was it in Sanskrit originally? And beyond that, what word did the Buddha have in mind when he, when he gave us this Description of how the Bodhisattva is on the third ground. So that's what's coming up tonight. And it's really, as I say, it's kind of tantalizing. It's fascinating because we are people who understand ourselves in terms of psychology, by and large. That's a function of the 20th, 21st century. So this word should be graspable. We should be able to get close to this word. And yet somehow it falls right in between the the available English terms that we have to, to translate the word. And then we have to say, what did the Chinese think it meant when they called it xin? And when it was translated into Sanskrit, probably it was citta, it might have been manas, it might have been uh, some of the other words that refer to, to inner, inward processes. So let's, let's dig in and see if we can figure out what that means. So this is our refrain section, our kind of the chorus that repeats. Disciples of the Buddha, it is like Jun Jin, says the Bodhisattva, who's explaining this. His name is Treasury of Vajra. Bodhisattva is telling us this story on behalf of the Buddha. It's just like Jun Jin. Um, So Piru means analogy coming up. The Buddha is using something that we know to talk about something we don't know. That's what analogies do. He gives us something close so we can understand something that's not as close. In this case, he says it's like Jun is true, but it also means real, genuine, the, the bona fide, the actual concrete thing. Jun, Jin, is the word for metal or gold. So is it like true gold? That's, that was the way it was translated the first time we went through this. But true gold implies false gold. And while we have fool's gold, it's not the same thing. What it means is real gold, 24 karat. 
gold that can't be further reduced. It's not gold plate. It's not gold leaf. It's gold through and through. Okay? It's like real gold, genuine gold. Which has been skillfully worked. It's been worked on really well. That after you work on this gold, um, what do they do? What does a metallurgist, what does a goldsmith do when they work on gold? Um, I've never seen it done, but I've been around people who do it. Um, our friend Raul Birnbaum, Professor Birnbaum, is a goldsmith, something I didn't know about him. Uh, one of the things that in his, uh, his uh, very interesting life, before he became a renowned scholar, was... He plays jazz clarinet. I bet you didn't know that about Professor Birnbaum, did you? And I'm sure he's delighted that I'm introducing that fact tonight. But he made his living uh, for a time um, working in the jewelry uh, section of New York City as an apprentice to a goldsmith. And uh, next time you talk to Professor Birnbaum, have him tell you some of those stories because he would tell you about these men, by and large. It's, It's kind of a it's a guild, G-U-I-L-D, you know, the, like the, the trades from Europe. The barrel makers were called hoopers, the hoopers guild. What are arrow makers called? What's the name of the, the person who makes arrows? What is it? How do you spell? Spell it again? You don't know. Fletcher, is that what you said? What was his? Archer. Oh, an archer. You've seen Hunger Games. Come on, you guys know. Okay, no, an archer is the person who shoots the arrow, right? Archers, you know, Robin Hood was an archer, and Katniss Everdeen was an archer. And if you've seen the Avengers, who was the archer in the Avengers? Hawkeye. Okay, come on, guys. How come the monk knows more about this? Okay, never mind. That's not a question. If you took as many airplane flights as I did, you would know this thing. Right. So, a person... Okay, I'm still waiting for the answer. What is the name of the person who makes the arrows? Fletcher. Fletcher. Five points to the monk in the front row. Okay. What, what do the Olympics do? Nine, four, nine, five, nine, three, nine, four. Right. Okay, a Fletcher. So, if you have a friend whose name is Fletcher, chances are, in the past, they might have made arrows. So, goldsmiths are trades like that. It's a trade, somebody who works with gold. Professor Birnbaum would tell you that these old guys sit at their bench for 30 years working on gold. No days off. That's what they do. And he, he, he says that they become so much attuned to the gold that they kind of get the gold in their skin pores and their fingers turn gold and probably their lungs turn gold. I don't know if it's toxic, but they, what they do is their job is to turn something um, as lumpy as this metal. Gold is a metal, not an element. Or is it an element too? Is it on the atomic table, right? It's an element and a metal. They turn this into something beautiful, and of course, they can't lose any. You can't like, oops, oh well, start, you know. You gotta like do it really well and preserve it because it's super, super valuable. And it's a skill that you learn over years, not 
weeks, not days, not months. If you want to become a goldsmith, you apprentice. An apprentice means five weeks. How about 10 years? You're only 10 years to start with. Yeah, so you can't imagine, right? 10 years, yeah. How about that? 10 years of your life is going to be given to learning a trade before you get up to journeyman. And then if you want a master, try another 10, you know. So this is the way guilds and trades and crafts were done. So Professor Birnbaum talks about the skill of being a goldsmith, what, how amazing that is and how these people truly devote their lives to it. Not very glamorous, not a field where if you want to advance, you, you know, you want to IPO and cash out in 18 months, you know, and mm-mm, not going to happen that way. So it's not a fad. And it's the other thing about gold is it is worldwide. There is no culture. I shouldn't say that. I don't know if that's true. Many, 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 many cultures of the world value gold, value it, because why? There's only so much. Why is it valuable? Can't find it. Our local football team is called the Raiders. Darn my master. No, 49ers. 49ers. Why are we called the 49ers? Because in 1849, there's gold in them thar hills. California Gold Rush. Oh boy. California Gold Rush brought lots of people out of their homes in Guangzhou, in Fujian, in places, other places, and grab a seat, grab a seat, and took them all the way to California. And if you look at those pictures of the Klondike in Alaska, oh my, um, I remember, this is one of my cultural awakenings, I remember that. My, uh, uh, my dad discovered the uh, documentary videos at the Toledo Public Library. And it was so amazing to uh, realize that if you went to the library for free, they would give you a movie. And these movies were so interesting, right? It was the documentary section. And the Toledo Public Library, back when I was a kid, was lending movies. But it was documentaries. One of the documentaries I watched was Klondike, about what it was like to go to Alaska to dig the yellow metal out of the ground. Oh, my goodness. Those pictures of these lines of men and mules going up these icy mountains just to live in the ice and see, try their luck to see whether you could find metal gold, yellow gold under the, under the ice. And if you did, you were lucky enough, chances are you'd get, get it stolen on your way to the bank, to the assayers, to, or if the assayer discovered that you had a lot of gold, your chances of getting it safely past the saloons were not that good either. So tough. Gold is universally treasured. It is truly treasure. In the sutras, they talk about the seven precious things, and the first is gold. Gold, silver, lapis lazuli, rubies, mother of pearls, and carnelian, right? So that's gold. Chances are some of you have some on your body as we speak, right? Because it's a valuable thing. So it's like Junjin, it's like real gold. What's real gold like? It has this quality that when you assay it, right? And what do you do? You put it in the fire and you pound it. You put it in the fire and you pound it. You put it back in the fire 
and you pound it. And it changes the um, imperfections, the dross, the impurities come out of it. And yet the weight doesn't change. How interesting, isn't it? That's one of the qualities of gold, is that it's rare to get 24 carat. I don't know why carats became the quality of gold, the measurement. But 24 carat means that's it, no, no further impurities. Much of the gold that you find will be less, less valuable. I was just in uh, New Zealand's southern island, and there was gold discovered in New Zealand and for a short, short time. And these towns on the west coast would boom and then vanish in 10 years when the gold ran out. And uh, in these little forsaken places on what they call the wild west coast of the southern island of New Zealand, they have these uh, museums of the, the tools, the lifestyles, the clothes, the food that people put up with in order to discover, in order to extract a very little bit of this wonderful gold. So the bodhisattva is like that too. The bodhisattva, it says, goes into the fire over and over, gets pounded, goes back into the fire, gets pounded, goes back into the fire willingly, volunteers. And what happens? Without losing his humanity, becomes 24-carat human. He becomes, she becomes, Zhuan Geng Mingjing, brighter. Gradually brighter. Interestingly, the Zhuan here is literally means to turn. And what it means is progressively, over and over, in a long series of processes, the smelting process, the bodhisattva's wholesome qualities, literally called roots of goodness, these wholesome qualities improve. They become free of dross. Okay, so there's our analogy, right? The analogy is talking about gold. In fact, the sutra wants us to know about the bodhisattva on the third ground. What happens when he or she goes back into the fire? Now, what would that mean? How does a bodhisattva go into the fire? Not literally. It means that the bodhisattva puts himself, herself, back into their practices, back into their vows, those two things in particular. And the practices, why is it, you know, analogous to a fire? It's because something gets burned away every time you cross your legs, every time you choose for virtue instead of desire, every time you do the same old instead of something new, right? That a large part of practices has to do with managing boredom. Um, it's boring to sit still for yet another hour. It's boring to tie into bowing for yet another day, to keep it up, to not just say, I'm getting nowhere, I want to do something new and different, I'm out of here. Right? And the bodhisattva goes, okay, well, let me listen to that voice. What, who is telling me? that I'm out of here. Who is that actually giving me the advice that I need a change? 
that I would somehow be happier if I abandoned my practice and sat down to watch the Olympics instead. You know, Nothing wrong with watching the Olympics, but if it knocks you out of your practice, it's just more of the same. You know, It's the same old, same old, only this has got movement and sense input. This only has the world impacting your senses. So the Bodhisattva goes, yeah, you know, actually, uh, sitting here in meditation is a whole lot like the Olympics, as a matter of fact. (laughs) I mean, the whole world is going by as I'm sitting here, whichever amount touches my ears and my skin and my nose and my butt as I'm sitting here on the cushion. There's a serious test of my resolve, determination, attitude, patience, vigor, kindness, Sympathy, all that is being pushed to Olympic limits as I sit here yet one more hour on this cushion. So it's not too far-fetched to imagine that the Bodhisattva is aiming for the same kind of outstanding performance of Michael Phelps, you know, racing for 18 gold medals and 22 total medals. Good grief, you know. You're trying to be outstanding as you meditate. Maybe not, but some people sit there thinking, I don't have to do anything else and I'll certainly die. I mean, no effort at all and my life will come to an end at the appointed hour. Wouldn't it be nice in the meanwhile to do something different? To like really make an effort and see if I can't advance on the road of virtue, wisdom, insight, kindness. Why not? Can I make it over the bar? You know, so... It's a stretch, but you can see the analogy between the athletes competing in London and the bodhisattva sitting on that cushion yet one more hour, bowing in the cold of the morning where nobody else is awake and there's only this little incense smoke going like this while you're bowing to some ancient book. You know, how unusual, how, uh, how motivated do you have to be to keep that practice going? And the sutra says it's like a fire. You go back in, you smelt one more time. But from the point of view of the Bodhisattva in the Sutra, it's interesting because he or she, I'm putting words in the Bodhisattva's mouth, but I think it would be like the the idea that um, submitting, yielding, voluntarily to the Dharma in the end produces genuine results. Following that voice that says, eh, this is boring, produces no guaranteed results. If there's a difference, it would be the presence of the Dharma. And Dharma in one One definition of it in China is like a mold, like a cookie cutter. And I'm the dough, and the cookie cutter goes stamp on the dough, and out comes the snowman or the star, right, the the cookie. And the Dharma says, here is a mold, here's a shape. It's a recognized shape. It's a bodhisattva shape. It's an arhat shape. It's the shape of a sage. It's the shape of a virtuous human being. Stamp it on the dough every single time you get 
a virtuous human being. Every single time you get a sage. It's not the case you stamp that mold down and it's a snowman mold and you come out with a Christmas cane, a candy cane. You don't. You get a snowman if it's a snowman mold. The Dharma is like that. Not too much. If it's too much, you cut some away. Not too little. If it's not enough, you add to it. You match the shape of the Dharma of that practice and reliably outcomes that shape, that mold. So that's the idea of the Dharma. If you apply it, quote, according to the Dharma, a hundred times out of a hundred, you get the shape that you stamped over the dough. That's why I think, as I say, I'm putting words in the Bodhisattva's mouth, but why I think the Bodhisattva would say, yeah, burns, it's not, quote, fun in the definition of laid back, whatever, dude, fun, but it produces results. And at a certain point, the fun of whatever dude becomes less fun because that has a certain end too, which is one more time around. Here we go again. Back into birth and death one more time. That's a mold, but it's a mold that involves breaking up and coming back together in another, through another womb to another set of parents. And the Dharma mold says, no, this produces results, but it's a, the shape of something beneficial to the world. So anyway, something like that, I believe the Bodhisattva has in mind as he goes back in the fire one more time and becomes progressively brighter. Pusa yifu rushir. Okay, here we go. Zhu ci fa guang di, bu ji ji gu, xie tan, xie chen, ji yi, xie chi, jie de chu duan. All right. Um, while staying on this ground of emitting light, bu ji ji gu. This, this translation is, uh, um, can be improved. Let's see if we can smooth it out. Dwelling, that's an archaic, it's a funny kind of use. It, it just means when he's here, when he stays here. When the Bodhisattva lives here, when the Bodhisattva stops, rests, abides, passes through, when the Bodhisattva is here on this Di, the third stage, the stage that re- emits light, as the Bodhisattva does that, he, she, this is gender neutral language, no longer ji ji grows in, collects, puts together, amasses, gathers, no longer um, accumulates. What? Xie tan, xie chen, ji yi, xie chi, three things greed, anger, and delusion. Okay, this, the word xie repeats three times. And in BTTS, we reliably went directly to the Matthews Chinese English Dictionary. And the first word, the Matthews Chinese English Dictionary for xie was deviant. And deviant, where I came from as a kid, meant sexual deviant. There was not... Deviant, you're something really wrong with you. 
and it was not a good thing that was wrong with you. It was, it was wrong with you in the wrong way. It was not wrong with you in the right way. So it's like, uh, bad choice. What deviant means, the word xie in Chinese does have that connection with wa. You know, xie shi shuo fa. Xie means there, it's shadowy and dark. And, but it doesn't only mean that. It also means like this, crooked. Something that is xie can't last long, it's going to go boom, just by gravity, boom. Something that is zheng, which is the opposite of xie, is here. Right? Zheng doesn't fall. Zheng is, it's the, the more gravity pulls, the solider it is. Xie and Zheng are opposites. And the meaning here, I think, doesn't necessarily tie into this notion of somewhere, you know, out behind the, the barn. It's in the shadows. It means crooked, not stable, not going to land, not going to last. Um, the best analogy came to us from NASA. Um, back in the days of putting a spacecraft into orbit, we don't do that anymore. Did you all are aware of that? The total demise of the the fact that we're if we want to go into space now, we rent it from the Russians. <laughs> we rent the vehicle from the Russians. Meanwhile, guess who's building the biggest space space station? The Chinese are building the biggest space station. And they're going to get it quick. They've had three successful manned space journeys. The last one, a woman, female astronaut, did spacewalks, put together the thing. We are not funded for space. I just heard this is totally a digression from the sutra. Never mind. <laughs> Stifle yourself, Mom. Okay. I heard an interview. Miles O'Brien is this, our, our kind of our last space journalist. And he goes around trying to get people interested in NASA. And there was a fascinating interview with our Chinese astronaut. The U.S. space program has a Chinese astronaut. What was his name? Anybody know? Anybody following? I forgot. He's, he's been up, what, eight times or something? We have a very distinguished Chinese astronaut in our space program. And he was assaying, as a Chinese-American, American-born Chinese, the situation with the Chinese space program. And he said, people are going to be real surprised in this country when we go up in a Russian rocket to spend time on a Chinese space station because the U.S. does not fund NASA. We have stopped that. We don't do space exploration. We give money to billionaires instead. So never mind. We're not going there tonight. But it's so interesting to realize that the progress in space at the moment is being made by the Chinese. So um, that's how things are. And if anybody watched uh, Firefly, remember Firefly? They, the Chinese, everything in space was Chinese, interestingly. So that's another story. So um, the interesting, as I said, the best analogy of Xie came from NASA. They talked about what? They talked about putting a rocket. If you were going to get something into orbit, you had to go through, they called it a keyhole in space. Remember that phrase? Had to go through a keyhole in space. Are you all too young? Tam, you remember. Keyhole in space. We old guys got to stick together. You had to go through a keyhole in space, which meant all the coordinates had to be right. Here's a, an orbiting body, right? Let's say the moon. 
And if you want to go around the moon, and you're starting over here in the Earth, here's the moon going around the Earth. If you want to put this rocket with a human on board, you've got to get it precisely through this space, this little kind of like a keyhole. And then you can achieve orbit around this body that's moving like this. So you've got to put it up in the right place. So it'll do that. And if you're off by a little bit, you miss, and that, you're gone. You know, and you miss, you miss your orbit. So it's mathematical. The keyhole in space is the trajectory, the orientation has to be just right. So only when the mathematics are correct will that rocket achieve passage through the keyhole in space. So that's junk. It's not xie. If it's xie, you will not make it through that keyhole in space. And this is greed, anger, and delusion, stupidity, that is xie, meaning it's off. What do we say in English? He's off. You're really off. We sometimes say that's crooked. That's not straight. You're not straight. So the result of not straight, you won't make it through the keyhole. You're off, even by a little bit. If you're off by a little bit, you won't get there. So the, um, the notion that uh, you want to be jung, is there jung, greed, anger, and delusion proper? No. So we've got to tie this. This is a bigger idea that we're going to try to tie together here. So... Once the bodhisattva stays here, passes through, you could say, although Zhu means stationary, once he is stationed on this ground, the stage of emitting light, which is the, the name of the third ground, because nothing accumulates anymore, therefore, greed, anger, and delusion, which is modified by being xie, it's off, gets cut off, gets stopped. Okay, what's the verb? Doesn't grow anymore, doesn't collect anymore. His mind doesn't, on the third ground, the bodhisattva's mind does not collect things, doesn't make collections, doesn't gather stuff anymore. So, you know what happens? Three kinds of poisons don't grow. They don't rest in the mind at this point. Greed, anger, and delusion, what are called three poisons. Okay, let's look back. In this ground, on this third ground, we took the bodhisattva through meditation. Remember? The bodhisattva went through the dhyanas. Remember that? Talked about first, second, third, and fourth dhyana. Talked about the samadhis. And the bodhisattva, because of going through the dhyanas, was able to manifest, was able to make occur these extra normal abilities. Furthermore, the bodhisattva saw beings suffering and said, I've got to find a way to stop that. I really got to find a way to do something about the pain and suffering that I see my family undergoing. At that, with that resolve, with that empathy, the Bodhisattva said, how am I going to do that? I'm going to do that only by using 
what the Buddha taught because the Buddha was an expert at putting an end to misery. That was what he accomplished. By becoming a Buddha, afflictions, troubles, miseries no longer lasted in the Buddha's body, mouth, and mind. So he taught about that. The Bodhisattva says, I got to find out what he said. What did he teach? What did he say? So he decides he's going to. And remember that each one of these grounds has a little vignette in it, a little story. And in the story, somebody said, okay, if you will throw your body down from the highest heavens into a pit of fire and undergo all the suffering involved, I will speak one sentence of Dharma that will, quote, purify your bodhisattva practices. I'll teach you what you, what you need, and I'll give you that last jigsaw puzzle piece, which when you apply, gives you the whole picture. And you will be able to say something that will help living beings. The bodhisattva says, I'll do it. I will. I definitely will. And at that point, he was able to enter samadhi. At that point, the psychic abilities arose, and he started to teach living beings skillfully. Okay? So that's the... Uh, that's our process that got us to this point. So because he's been through all these uh, inner transformations based on his compassion, based on his connection with beings, as a result, something has happened to the Bodhisattva's essential nature, which is greed, anger, and delusion no longer sticks to it. You could translate this bujiji as doesn't stick. These poisons, these coverings of the mind, which are in our natures until somewhere in this process of cultivation, they arise, they don't stick. They don't jiji, two words that mean pile up. They don't accumulate. Did anybody ever use any of that no stick on your car windshield? water go away, no stick stuff, Isn't that amazing stuff. You spray it on, you put it in your, yeah, and the water goes bead put, bead put, like that. It falls and beads, it's gone. That's what's happening. No stick on the Bodhisattva's mind anymore. So the greed, anger, and delusion land and don't stick. As a result, stop. This crooked greed, anger, and delusion, this wrong, incorrect greed, anger, and delusion may rise, doesn't stick. Chu duan is another verb which means stops. Okay? So it's a net, quote, natural process that's happening here, but only as a result of what the Bodhisattva has done. The process that he has gone through and being willing to put himself, herself, back in the fire. Do the practice one more day. Do the practice one more day. Do the practice one more day. Shrifa would say, don't think in terms of days. Don't only look in front of you. Look long. Think in terms of lifetimes. How long does a bodhisattva's vow last? You know. So, these all stop. Chu Duan. They stop. Duan has the uh, axe radical in it, that character Duan. 
See in the third, third line, the fifth character from the right, that right-hand side, the thing that looks kind of axe-like, is actually an axe. It gets cut off. And the character to the left of it is, is, uh, has threads. Soyo, Shangan, Juan, Gong, Mingjing, and all his wholesome qualities get brighter progressively. His mind still gets brighter. Okay? Gets brighter still, even more. Gets even more bright. Now, notice that this is three out of ten. This is the third ground out of ten. The Bodhisattva's mind is a long way to go, but it's brighter yet. So, People who talk about getting enlightened over the weekend, maybe you wake up, there can be small awakenings, but this is a long, long process. And imagine how the mind shines when it's completely, when it's completely pure. This is pr- sequentially, progressively more pure. Okay, here we go. The next chunk of this passage is what we were talking about. What did they mean with the word xin? Here we go. Okay, we have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen shins. Usually it's ten. This is a special, a special one, special list. Um, from here on, throughout the ten grounds, the this refrain portion of the of each ground has a list of shin, a list of whatever we're going to use for this in English. And when I first read this, I was on a a pilgrimage, and this was along with the Six Patriarch Sutra and uh, a copy of the Tao Te Ching, and I think were the the only three books that I looked at for nearly three years. And I really looked closely at these shin in each of the successive grounds because what was going on? What, what is the, what's the notion here? So I don't claim any special knowledge of these, but I'm saying that these, these bear a lot of examination. I, ne- I was able to go to the point where I saw a thread through each one of the grounds but to relate them to each other or to experience this, it's, uh, I don't know. I really don't know what it is, but I do know it's important because it, it gets repeated. Okay, so let's look first of all at the, the idea. The idea is, says, this bodhisattva's, apostrophe S, 13 kinds of shin down to the last four words, jie zhuan, qing jing, all progressively purify or refine 
or essentialize or uh, master. Qingjing doesn't mean pure like ivory soap, 99 and 4400. Ivory soap, what's the claim? Um, I mean, it can, but I think more it means masters. Can really do, really does. He really does these minds, these, these shin. Okay, so the bodhisattva progressively purifies. The trans- we did increase in purity. What is the, the word we're talking about? It's the people who have been following this text have seen this word a lot. Shin, the Chinese character, this that, this, and that is actually a picture of the heart organ, the actual physical organ in your chest. It's uh, the vena cava, the uh, I've forgotten my names for the parts of the heart with the, the veins and the arteries coming out. And so this is one of the pictograms, the, the 15% of Chinese words that are actually related to their, their visual uh, iconograph so it talks about the organ but it means certainly more than the organ and the Chinese considered this to be the seat of thought we go I've been thinking right or it was my idea right well the Chinese go I've been thinking so that's interesting. And the, the Chinese do something else that's very interesting. When they say me, point to their nose. Me. I did that. No, they go, I did that. It's a little higher. Any significance to that? I don't think so. Okay. You could write your dissertation on that. Give me a credit. In the, yeah. Why are the Chinese? The interpersonal consequences of physical... Identity gestures, post-structuralist analysis, never mind. So, Xin means both the thinker, but Xin also comes to mean the results of thought. It can mean also idea, notion, thought. So, it's both the thinker and the thought and the place where it happens. All that is tied up in this word shin. Now, as I say, we pretty much identify ourselves as, in terms of psychology, where the Freud and, and Jung and Adler and all of the original pioneers of Western analytic psychology, which then turned into psychiatry when it mixed with medicine, really... Uh, whether or not you could say those three men, they were the first writers and systematizers, but humanity at that point started to think of itself in terms of this inner process called thought. The word psyche came about, which was trying to grasp everything meant by the idea of thought, thinker, mental, psychology, all of those uh, 
terms in the West is if you look at Western intellectual history and you go far enough back, we were simply children of the book, meaning we all came from the Bible, according to pre-Renaissance kind of thinking. Individuals, if anything, we were defined by farmers and tradespeople, mostly men, right? Women don't even go there, don't even ask, right? Bit by bit, after the Renaissance, we had kind of identified ourselves with ideas for the very first time. And at the same time, we discovered that the, this earth was not the center of the universe, that indeed the sun was the center, and that was a big change. Then ideas became significant, and there's, you can trace it through art, you can trace it through music. But bit by bit by bit, we began to identify ourselves with thoughts, with, with schools of thought, with isms. And by the time we got to the 20th century, individuals could have important thoughts, thoughts that you'd be willing to sacrifice things for. Um, and a big, big change is pointing back to say that we've, it's a process by which we get to the idea of individuation was the term that Jung, Carl Jung, used to say that the, that the, the ideal maturity of the thinking process was when a person could maximize their thoughts in a, this is totally big brush kind of description, but that someone in touch with their roots as an individual and manifesting the ideals of civilization, of intelligence, sensitivity, intuition, and feeling, all of these different qualities could produce the individual. And the Chinese, on the other hand, earlier had talked about the junzi, the superior person, who 2,000 years earlier had come up with the idea of virtue as the quality that made one a perfected human. So different as human beings from different cultural perspectives at different times on the planet, humanity has reached for this sense of perfection, perfecting humanity. So since... Western analytical psychology came of age, we have pretty much understood ourselves in terms of um, a search for happiness is key, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Mm, liberty, freedom from, happiness, unhappy. Um, all of these notions border on the mind. I'm trying to make the case that um, we understand ourselves in terms of psychology. And you can find it anywhere. You deserve a break today, so get out and get away to McDonald's. Right? Advertising understands this. And it gives us uh, pictures of things that we want based on mental ideas, mental notions. That the happiest person is someone who can think, say, feel anything they want, when they want to, and no one can stop them. This is uh, the, 
the uh, notion of happiness. And the words that we use now are so, uh, so much based on this idea. Are you comfortable with that? Are you comfortable with that, that uh, uh, motion that's on the table? Well, I'm not really comfortable with that. Uh-huh. You know, you're making me very uncomfortable. Um, could you say it in a different way? Say it in a nicer way. Could you present it in a way that uh, completely satisfies my sense of how I... Could you answer my needs, right? I wanted to answer my needs. All this language that we have that is working towards a sense of answering inner... What? Impulses, feelings, thoughts, desires, needs. This is a whole new vocabulary that we use every day, being, whether we're aware of it or not, that is tied to a gradual cultural progression towards the mind. And it happens very slowly. Um, and the language we use is so imprecise. It's not... We're not skillful in this. And where I come from in Ohio... Uh, California is very suspect, right? California was the home of touchy-feely. And uh, in, in Ohio, it was like, not mind you, you know, I can't generalize. Many Buddhist monks and nuns came from Ohio. So Ohio still has hope of producing sensitive individuals, right? Um, but a lot of the folks would say, just get on with it. You know, I don't care whether you're comfortable with it. Just get the job done, you know. So cultural progress, you can see it in Ohio, California, and New York were the places where it was happening. So, okay, you, you can kind of sense where I'm going with this. Here is the sutra describing the third stage bodhisattva and progressively, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, these bodhisattvas are all going to give us shin that these bodhisattvas are working on, what in the world are they talking about? Is it the same thing that we talk about when we say uh, this person is suffering from a severe uh, schizophrenic, uh, schizophrenic, what, uh, attachment? What, what? Com- complex. We, th- we think of ourselves in terms of complex, as mental complex. This person has low self-esteem. This person is had a psychotic break. That sounds terrible. What does that mean? This person is very mentally unbalanced. This is an unhinged individual. This is a disgruntled postal worker who went ballistic. Right? We are willing to let somebody get away with being a mass murderer if we can prove that they were unhinged at the moment. They were mentally aberrant. They were shi'e instead of being chan, right? So how interesting that the kind of cultural place that this idea holds for us based on imprecise attempts to describe what's going on inside. What's going on? It's invisible. You can't see it, but it's so important for us. Okay, here's a bodhisattva who is so precise in his understanding of this word, shin, that he will tell you that 
patience, compliance, harmony, good cheer, no hate, stillness, no turbidity, a mind that is neither high nor low, so centered and balanced, a mind that is not looking for rewards, a mind that wants to repay kindness, a mind that doesn't flatter, doesn't deceit, and is not treacherous. All these, what? Shin, are becoming more pure. How precise, how psychological is our bodhisattva? I mean, look at this. What's the difference between a compliant and a harmonious mind? Uh, I'm sure there is one. The bodhisattva will tell you. Because here they are. How interesting. Look at... Now, let's take a step back. If the sutra is talking about a human experience, you've got to assume that the Buddha... This is not theory for the Buddha, as he described this. This is psychological fact. That's how we would describe it. The Buddha is talking about a state of mind that is available to everybody. Because the Bodhisattva has been through this third ground process, look at Look at what's coming out of him or her right now. This is, if you were doing a, if you were a psychotherapist and you were doing a write-up and you were looking at the Bodhisattva accurately, you'd say, uh-huh, I see, yes, and patient, compliant, harmonious, cheerful, trustworthy, loyal, helpful, friendly, courteous, kind, obedient, cheerful, thrifty, brave, clean, and reverent. How am I doing? Got it? Eagle Scout. So, these qualities are coming out of the Bodhisattva. This is fact. This is not, I like that Bodhisattva. He's kind of compliant. No, compliant mind. Bing. Right there. Right? Just as a psychotherapist would say, sorry, you have neurosis. You are neurotic. You know, you are schizophrenic. This is a diagnosis of the bodhisattva, medical, clear, precise. It's not kind of compliant. It's compliant. How interesting, right? So, Master Shrenhua says, in this country, as we introduce the Dharma, don't call it Buddhism. Call it depth psychology. Right? Call it profound humanity in a precise mirror. How interesting, you know. Here's a psychological profile of somebody who's cultivating to the level of the third ground. Boom. Okay, now, what is a shin? What in the world is he talking about? Do we know? Is it the same thing that Jung was talking about? That Freud was, I have no idea. I think it's really careful not to equate you know, the same. Um, one thing we can say for sure is these sutras are talking about a hu- psychological human experience. Is it the same thing we're talking about when we say psychologists, psychology, or more so psychiatry? Don't know. But it's the same vicinity. Only, here's a very thorough psychological work up of somebody from 2,500 years ago. Right? So Jung and Freud were busy in the early 20th century. Right? The Buddha gave us the Bodhisattva state of mind 2,500 years ago. 
No wonder on Thursday night, Spirit Rock comes here, right? American Vipassana, uh, the Insight Meditation community, they are one-third psychotherapists. One-third of them, of the 80 folks who are here every Thursday night for the last 17 years. Why? Because if you ever studied psychology in college, you were probably as frustrated as I was hearing about neurosis, psychosis, paranoia, schizophrenia, all pathologies, all sicknesses of the mind, but never hearing about patience, compliance, harmony. That's not, that's an exaggeration. But I was taught in psychology, I was so thrilled, finally I get to learn about the mind. I was taught about experiments with rats, statistics and demographics, and pathologies. And it was done through the talking cure. My friends, my roommates, who went on to get their doctorates at Cal in psychology are now doing hypnosis because they brought results faster than the talking cure. And this was a guy who had a wall-sized poster of Sigmund Freud in his bedroom, (laughs) covering the wall. And he's now doing hypnosis because the talking cure is too slow. And it doesn't, it's too expensive, mind you. And boy, you know what it costs to get analyzed. So anyway, here's the Buddha saying, yeah, this bodhisattva's mind's progressively more, but they're not there yet, right? Progressively clearer. The Buddha is giving us our mind at its most healthy. Here's a model of of psychology. Look at what happens if you cultivate, according to the third ground dharmas, you get very healthy. You get patient. You get compliant. You get harmonious. Your greed goes away. Your mind is neither high nor low. You are balanced. You're stable. Right? How interesting. This is the model of humanity the sutra is giving. This is a good human. And yet, it's not there yet. Progressively brighter. Okay, so let me ask you one more time. What is this word, shin? What's he talking about? Fred, what's he talking about? What is shin? Anybody? No? Angel? Thoughts and feelings together. Thoughts and feelings together. I think so. But not only. There's more. Certainly feelings are included, and thoughts are there too, but I think that's, what about intuitions? You know, for example, there's one of Jung's quadrants. He talks about the four parts of the mind. Definitely that's there too. So thoughts, feelings, intuitions, memories, dreams, and reflections. What else? What else is here? Character. Character, right? Yeah, character is here for sure. That's attitude. Okay? So, feelings, thoughts, character, attitude. What about, you know, let's, okay. Any more as we're adding these up? Habits. Habits, and you'd have to say, you know, biases, 
um, perspectives, assumptions, all of the... Once you open up this collection, if you go to your, your thesaurus and start looking at the word thought, there's probably 40 words that we use regularly that have to do with prejudices, biases, etc., all those things, habits. Now, in the uh, skandhas, the Buddha gave us the, from the, the what is the, the Buddha's makeup of the mind? He said, first there's body, then there's feelings, and feelings also includes emotions. So the rupa skanda, the form skanda, the body, then you go into sensations, right? I feel the pressure on my skin as I hit there. So that's sensations and feelings both. So that's a pinch is painful. Uh, a, a caress is not as is smooth. This is sharp, that's smooth. That's all sensation and feeling. The next step is what? Thought. That's the, the third skanda. The fourth one, Jerry gave us habits. The fourth skanda, samskara, is the one where you have the deeper, kind of thicker thoughts, which is biases, prejudices, conceptions, opinions, um, habitual thoughts. That also includes, interestingly enough, the... Uh, I've lost the word... Um, the processes that happen without thought, such as respiration, right? Um, what else? Metabolism. Those things. Sleep rhythms. That's all contained in that fourth skanda. So this would all be part of Shin, right? The Buddha, over the 49 years of his teaching, gave us lots of pictures of the mind, lots and lots of analyses of the mind. So skandhas would be in there. But is it that and is it something else? I don't want to put anybody on the spot naming names. I know there are people here who have a lot of knowledge of Buddhism. What all is contained in the word shin? I would like to render that shin as a principle. Principle? Principle, okay. And why? Okay. Okay. Yeah. Principle's good. But I, <clears throat> I would I would say principle is included, but shin also includes action. There's things that decisions, for example, based on principle. So principle is a part of it, but it doesn't contain it. I would say shin contains principles, so definitely that's there. That would be part of the fourth skanda, or maybe even deeper. That might even be in consciousness. Where in the five skandhas does principle lie? I think its principle is kind of grooved into the mind. For example, cause and effect, the Buddha would say, is totally there before thought. So principle is in there, too. Okay. So, if those are all the components, let's get an English translation. For Xin, does mind do it? 
Notice we translate it as mind. Does mind do it? My Dharma brother, Father Thomas Hand, the late Jesuit uh, Buddhist meditator, used psyche for Shin. He said psyche is a really good invention of Western psych- analytical psycholo- psychology. And uh, psyche is Greek. And it's like mind as container of all this stuff. And then to describe the Greek word, he used gestalt as a German word to describe psyche. So we're really deep into to European research. So it's mind and the whole process. So that would include mind and its thoughts. Now, we had attitudes. Attitude is, doesn't contain it because attitude sounds superficial. It's like, oh, you know, lots of attitude. Just quit the attitude already, meaning come back to something more basic. So attitudes are in Shin for sure. But, and I think that's what you meant. There are attitudes included. To translate Shin as attitude doesn't get to the deeper, you know, the principles, the biases, the perceptions, per se. So, intention. Intention, usually we've been translating yi for intention, xin yi. There's another word that the Chinese regularly use, yi, which is, it's a, it's a creation of the xin, and intention comes out of the xin, right? So, uh, anybody gone into the Sanskrit for this? Chitta, C-I-T-T-A, chitta is probably the word used, the Sanskrit word. Chitta, um, it's tempting to want to translate chitta as thought. The chitta comes out of the manas, M-A-N-A-S, comes out, the thought comes out of the mind. But I think that's going to mislead people. First of all, what is a thought? You know, oop, suddenly we're in deep water, you know. Um, what about a thought that's a dream? Suddenly, you know, thought is imprecise. And I'm suggesting the Buddha is using this very precisely. The Buddha is not just kind of, you know, shin. I think there's, I think certainly the Buddha knows what he's talking about. Do we? And it's tempting to want to paste on an English word, but we might be limiting what the Buddha meant. So, is there any other... Have you been reading my translate? No. That's good. Phil. Yeah. That's the one I use. Mindset. Yeah. Mindset. Because it's what is a mindset? It's it's an attitude, it's a a perspective, it includes, it's not limiting like idea. It it includes the thinker and the thought. And thoughts, plural, so hyphenated, M-I-N-D-S-E-T, is what I'm tending to use now, mindset. The bodhisattva, while dwelling on this ground, while staying, while resting on this, while he is on the ground of emitting light, his thoughts 
no longer accumulate in, uh, wrong greed, crooked hatred, and incorrect stupidity. Just trying to deal with the Shia. These are all extinguished. These all stop, and his good roots, his wholesome qualities become brighter and more pure. This bodhisattva's mindset of patience, compliance, harmony, cheer, non-hating. Right? I would use it once and then repeat. All of these mindsets increase in mastery, gradually become, he becomes gradually master of these mindsets, or purity is, is what it says. He, he becomes better at these mindsets, is what it means. He's good at it. He's better at it. How does that sound? Are we closer than simply saying mind? I think so. Because a mind of patience, you know. So these are the challenges. Du lao shi, zhe ge fan wen, hai yo mei yo qi ta de, zhe ge xin qi de, hai yo qi ta de ma. Are the same. The third one is spell. Jana. Jana. Chitta Manas and Jana are the same. Yeah. They were used by Chinese, Shin was used by Chinese translators to translate three different Sanskrit terms. And essentially, depending on the translator, depending upon the century it was being, depending on the Sanskrit original, came out as Shin. So if you look at it through the lens of practice, it's the experience of that inside part. Okay? How many of us have been talking to mom and dad when they say, obey me or you're grounded? Do it because I say so. Right? Because I said so. And in your mind, you're going, drop dead, you rotten, greedy shaman singer. You know, maybe you didn't say that. Maybe I was the only one who said that. Or you, you know, you, you were forced because of the circumstances to smile, and inside you were really angry. The Chinese say, your, mind's, your mouth said yes, your mind said no. What is that voice inside that's going, you can't make me? Right? Yes, officer, you're correct. I was speeding. I am glad to accept this speeding ticket. You are upholding public safety. You know. You know. What is that inner voice that's talking back? That's the experience that the Buddha was saying, Shin, the inside part. That the Sanskrit gave us three different words for. The Chinese at different times used the word Shin to describe that. That's a real experience. You've had it, I've had it. How do we say it in English? Mindset. Hmm. Maybe. Character? Yeah, character. The problem with character is it, it refers to a whole other experience, which is pindo. 
It's a description of somebody's wholesome... You could say someone has a bad character. Character does not produce shin. Doesn't produce thoughts. In my understanding. Character in English... The, another, another issue is character in English is pretty much a synonym for personality. And personality is not deep enough to account for... You say, this person has a patient character, uh, a cheerful character, a non-hating character. It's close, but it doesn't have the dynamism that I, I get with Shin. Shin is both the thing that holds the thoughts and the thoughts itself. It's the thinker and the result of thought. And the thinker and the result, and the thing, so it's both source and, it's both parent and child. Right? Parent is the mind, thoughts are, thoughts are the child. Character doesn't have that, in my understanding of character. Heart. Okay, okay, okay. Good. In our early Buddhist text translation society versions of the sutras, we automatically translated heart. Every time the word shin came, we put heart out. And my problem was I was always seeing the actual physical heart and a patient heart and a compliant heart. That's not what it meant. It meant attitude, character, you know, state of mind, mindset. But it gets clunky is the problem. It gets because heart, number one, in the West, we don't think of heart as the seat of thought. Your cheating heart will tell on you. I cried and cried. Right? We think thought of emotion, right? Your cheating heart. Roy Acuff. Um, Tammy Wynette. Definitely. Tammy Wynette. So, um, what does Shin mean? Okay, I'm going to give it to us as... What are you laughing at? I'm going to give it to us as homework. Okay? How about mentality? Mentality is pretty close. Mentality. But notice, mentality has to fit in 13 different variations of mentality. And it can. I mean, it can. Mentality is, I think, closer than character. It's, it's, it's a, it's, mindset is clunky. It's a hyphenated word. Trying to hold, put two things in one. Mindset. Mentality is pretty close. His patient mentality, his, Vicky, you here? No? His, you know, mentality of neither high nor low. Angela? Perspective or view. Perspective or view. Okay. This is getting rich. I mean, look, where do views come from? Views are totally from the mind. Points of view, view perspective, the way you, you converge on the horizon, the way you see it. And they can be shaped by your thoughts and your feelings and your character. They can be shaped by your thoughts, your feelings, your character, all of those things. Yeah, perspective, mentality, viewpoint, point of view, view, dashing. Mind working. Yeah, with a hyphen. 
mind hyphen working? Yeah, because it is. And yet, that is the, if you think of mind working, it's the result of the thought. That would be more like thought. The mind itself is included in shin. It's both the container and the... So, yeah. Okay, homework for next week. Okay, and we, why? This word is, if there's any single word that occurs more in the sutra than probably any other word except Buddha, it must be shin. The Avatamsaka Sutra talks about bodhisattvas. Bodhisattvas are characterized by the quality of their shin. The bodhisattva precepts are broken and held in their in the mind. Kevin? Volition. Volition is often used to translate that fourth skanda, samskara. Volition to me, and maybe I, you know, you can expand my understanding. Volition means a lot like intention. He, it, you did it uh, with full awareness and volition. You wanted to. So it was your intention to do so. So volition, there's a lot of things here that volition wouldn't cover. But we're, I'm really happy that people are approaching this understanding because why? Look at how much Buddha Dharma has to do with that invisible experience. Not so much how long can you meditate, but how are you as a person? Are you paying attention to what's going on inside? Mind field? Mind field? If I field? Yeah, mind field? Yeah. Yeah, that's close. But the mind, it also has to include the fruits of the mind field, the flowers and the, the, the crops of the mind field. Seeds, yeah, yeah, fruits and flowers. Spell? Fields, mind fields, yeah? Can include the fruit. That's right. Okay, we're, we're past time. This is great. You all want to camp out here tonight? You bring your sleeping bag? Yeah, let's, let's continue. So. Okay. Nice. This is what I wanted to have happen. The Bodhi next ground, ten. I think it's more. I think it's ten. Instead, this is thirteen. A whole bunch of more shin that are specific to the fourth ground. Fifth ground, they have to do with with meditation, because the fifth ground has to do with samadhi. So, it's like, good grief. These bodhisattvas are so clear. And these facets, like gems on a diamond that you cut in, come out of the mind as you cultivate these dharmas. How fascinating. Okay, we will be here, same time, same place, um, next week to continue with the bodhisattva's progress through the third ground. In the back of your sutra text, um, did we get uh, songbooks passed out? If you have a songbook in front of you, please turn to the back. We're going to dedicate merit. It's also there on that chanting sheet that's part of your uh, sutra there. This is a dedication of merit, and this is done in the shin. The shin is what dedicates merit, and shin and shin touch in space. There's no specific boundary for the shin. There's no place where your shin goes that mine doesn't go. So, 
if that is the case, it's good to use that shared space to broadcast goodness, to seed that field, that mind field, with goodness. Uh, make a wish for however you would like to share the goodness that comes from being together with wholesome friends, looking into something positive and young and bright, which is a result of the Dharma and its practice. So make a wish and share it. Let's do it together. Because our hearts are one, this world of 